This is The Reason for Time, Episode 7, a podcast about invention, truth, and memory, and how they came together in a novel. Do you remember me telling you about the headlines I saw in the newspapers for that week of July 21st to 30th in 1919? You've already heard about the blimp crash. The next day, pictures of the 13 dead filled the papers, alongside stories speculating on whose fault it was. The Chicago City Council banned blimps from flying over the loop thereafter. Other headlines reported a race riot in Washington, D.C., and that President Woodrow Wilson, who was ailing, was continuing to work on the treaty that would lead to the League of Nations. On top of that, there were strikes or threatened strikes everywhere, the big one being the transit strike and the negotiations between Chicago Surface Lines and its employees who wanted a guaranteed eight-hour day. That comes into my story through Desmond Malloy, the streetcar conductor who, much to Maeve's disappointment, is always having to rush off to union meetings. I have to say that my heart sunk one day when I was researching details of these events at the Chicago History Museum. When she handed me the file I had requested, the helpful woman at the desk told me that another writer was interested in the same period. What? After discovering that dramatic week in the microfilmed newspapers, the summer of 2007, I had searched for other books or novels that covered that period and found nothing. Did someone else now have the same idea? He did, although I haven't read it because I didn't want to be influenced by research he had done for his own purposes. Gary Crist not only wrote City of Scoundrels, but published it well before I finished and found a publisher for The Reason for Time. City of Scoundrels got a lot of attention. What was I to do? Throw away my idea? What had become years of research and writing? No way. Crist's book is nonfiction, mine a novel. His concentrates on politics, I'm told. Mine focuses on the story of a single person who lived through those fraught days. A compelling angle, one reviewer wrote. But Christ and I did use much of the same material. How could we not? It was the events of that period that had inspired us both. The blimp crash, the race riots, the transit strike, and the abduction of a child, little Janet Wilkinson. Janet went missing on Tuesday, but Maeve didn't read about it until Wednesday. Janet, who was six, had last been seen on her way home from school. The immediate suspect, Thomas Fitzgerald, was the super in the building where Janet's family lived. He had been suspected of what was then called annoying young girls before, but never formally arrested and convicted, and in Janet's case, he denied any knowledge of her whereabouts. In their descriptions of Fitzgerald, journalists openly called him a moron. A person with an IQ of between 50 to 70 was classified a moron. Imbeciles were a degree lower, and idiots even lower than those. Like other words that were used in those days, moron would now be seen as disrespectful to someone with developmental or intellectual disabilities. Not then. Fitzgerald was labeled moron in headlines that were just as big as the headlines reporting the blimp crash. 
Because of the distraction caused by the streetcar conductor, Maeve only skims the girl missing in mystery story that she sees in the daily news on her way home from her bathing suit shopping expedition. Bathing suits. <laughs> the first book club I met with to discuss the book was a group of early 30s working women in Chicago who loved to read. It was summer, and bathing suits were not far from their minds. Someone mentioned Maeve's shopping trip, and they veered off the main discussion to lament the tortures of finding the right suit. Though I hadn't gone into that much in the book, they identified with Maeve wanting to look good and laughed about all she had to take off just to get into the suit. Drawers, petticoats, corset. Maeve was also thinking about that and thinking about Desmond, and so the girl missing in mystery headline line went right by her until the next morning when the headlines were hard to miss. Here's Ethel. Thursday, July 24th, 1919. 40-hour hunt fails to bear clue to child. The same missing girl I saw mentioned in a headline I'd skipped over the night before. But this story on the front page grabbed your stomach, where fear prowls, same as hunger. Only six years of age, and with the sweet face and the bobbed hair of baby Marie in the pictures. Janet Wilkinson. Gone missing on her way home from school. Not a trace wept her mother. Little Janet shambling along, as children do, up to the building where she lived with her mammy and her da in an apartment on the fourth floor. Disappeared, just like that, no trace. Not a school book, not a shoe. No screams heard. No signs of a child's nail marks on a doorknob she could have been clinging to. Only a box of chocolates found in the apartment of the janitor, name of Fitzgerald, lived in the same building. A moron, they called him the papers. Could have been him, Janet's father thought, but... As it was, the whereabouts of sweet Janet were a mystery, another mournful element in the day's hash of woe, other strikes brewing, prices going up. The trouble stretched out over the city like an elastic band, and me wondering what next thing would cause it to snap. In my days, I saw a horse rear up and near dump the man driving the wagon behind. People dodged the flying hooves, and in his haste, a man in a seersucker suit slipped on some horse leavings on the tracks. Boys laughed as he fell and rose again quickly, cursing the beast, just then suffering his master's whip, even as he craned his big horse head around, teeth bared, wanting to bite. Another boy there today, smaller, his father hunched behind him, holding a small stack of the extra papers. The little one's voice, a tin whistle shrill, threading through the two newsies already had claimed the corner. Fire captain dies on duty. Polak tenements destroyed. Russian troops, desert allies, join Bolsheviki. Mr. R. was studying Janet's story when I passed through the shop. I could see his shiny hair over the top of the front page. Did he think he could find her? Or bring in Anna Ava, whose powers made a person shiver at all that lay behind the solid world unsettling as the good people. Mr. R. and Anna Ava could go to that apartment building and call the spirit of little Janet. I believed they could do it, for I'd seen Anna Ava's power at work. But as the week moves on, and police and newspapers come up with various theories about what could have happened, Maeve's worries about Janet 
mingle with her worries about everything else. I decided to let the story unfold through the headlines that were gripping the city. Here's Ethel again. Janet's photo fails to bring confession. Pleading eyes of lost girl do not move Fitzgerald. Police order Lake dragged to find girl. Telephone calls inquire whether reports are true that body of lost child has been found in basement of Virginia Hotel. 2500 for Janet. To relieve the suspense of Janet's parents and friends, the Chicago Tribune will pay 2500 for exclusive information leading to the discovery of Janet Wilkinson. Full confession. Janet Slayer talks. Those were all actual headlines from newspapers of the day. Thank you, Ethel. Thanks to you, too, for listening. And to Ali Impress of Chicago, Harris Dixon, and Scott Joplin's Bethana for contributing to this podcast. Check out The Reason for Time on Facebook, post a question or leave a message there, and I promise to get back to you. You can buy the book from any online retailer or order it from your local independent, such as Type Books in Toronto, or ask for it at the library. Next time, the subject is love. I'm Mary Burns.